Welcome everybody. Um, today is another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. Our guest is Ray. Ray Reed is a writer, storyteller, and therapist. They work at a mental health partial hospital program for teens and recently been motivated to tell more stories about their experiences being bisexual and trans while growing up in a Christian family. Ray is passionate about the role of storytelling in empowering youth and is working on a curriculum combining the narrative therapy technique with storytelling games for teens, young adults, and children. They also are currently writing a novel that chronicles Zimbabwe's political history and their intersection with it. All right. Well, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. We're excited to have you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So to start us off, what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? Um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of different identities. Um, yeah. Definitely, um, I grew up in Chicago, but then have also spent time abroad um, and feel that that, that that has influenced me. And then growing up in a religious um, household, mm-hmm. I feel like it has influenced me in some positive and some negative ways. Um, I think that's impacted me in the way I saw myself because I, I felt very um, male since I, since I was young. Uh, and I also fe- felt attracted to notice my attraction to females when I was young. And so that impacted me, the, my religion impacted me by making me feel like there was something wrong with me because I felt that way, because I was told um, by the youth groups I went to and the schools I went to, um, that was a sin, that was not something that God agreed with. And I felt over time, though, as uh, I went to college, I went to Christian college, um, but actually befriended people who were more open, more open in their religious um, leaning and more open to the interpretation of the Bible. And so I became more comfortable with myself as bisexual and um, and then later as being trans. And then I, I grew to actually um, religiously be more, um, more Buddhist. And so um, I found that to be something that when I when I would go to a church, I would feel kind of guilty after I left. When I go to a Buddhist temple, I felt light and I felt happier. And so I, I started um, going to a Buddhist temple because of that. Very cool. Yeah. How did you get into uh, Buddhism? Well, actually, I um, I started meditating when I was about 22. I think I um, I struggled with depression and different things and. Um, I noticed that something that really helped me feel grounded and helped my anxiety as well because I struggled with anxiety was to meditate for 20 to 40 minutes a day. And so I started doing that. And then I realized when I went to a temple where other people were meditating, I felt even better. I felt even lighter. And so I started doing that. What's your um, form of meditation? Um, So I do a lot of different forms. Um, I kind of switch it up from one thing to another. Recently, I've been um, following my breath. Um, and that's been the main form. And then I listen to music as I follow my breath. And then other times I've counted up to 36, um, counted my breaths up to 36. Other times I've focused on an object. Mm-hmm. So those are things um, like, like a candle or something like that. Those are things that have been helpful. Do you use part of that in your clinical work as well? Do you I do. So there's a form of um, therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And it focuses a lot on mindfulness mm-hmm. and uh, that's, 
type of thing, which is basically staying in the present moment. Mm -hmm. And so we use a lot of different games and a lot of different activities um, to um, teach kind of a combination between um, therapy and um, mindfulness practices. Mm -hmm. I feel like that could be helpful with so many different things that people manage on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know more about all of this and how it intersects with Zimbabwe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so when I was seven, I moved to Zimbabwe with my family. My dad um, was working with the microfinance um, Christian organization. And so they were um, starting a program in Southern Africa and then later in um, East and West Africa. And so, um, yeah, I was there from seven until 12. I went to schools there and everything. Um, I didn't learn much of, of their native languages because um, English was a main language there too. Um, but in school, we did learn Shona, which was the main language. And I just loved it there. I just felt there was something about it that made me feel um, really centered, really um, connected to the land um, because just beautiful landscape you know, hills, rolling hills, or um, more, more like mountains with, with rocks on them, and then like the balancing rocks type mm-hmm. of thing. And then, um, you know, these beautiful rivers, and then of course, the um, Victoria Falls. Mm-hmm. And so just having memories of um, going to, you know, these beautiful locations to like, preserves for national parks, you know, with different animals, and, and then also just being connected to people that were really really wanting to get to know me and really, really um, made me feel at peace, you know? And so um, I've always wanted to, um, to go back. And I, I went back twice, once in 2008 and then once in 2014. And 2008 was during their political crisis. So I've always also felt like a sense of duty, like I spent some time there. I want to do something to, to raise awareness about what's going on there. And so that's why I went back in 2008. And then that's why I decided to write the novel that I'm writing. Yeah. How long were you there for when you went back? Um, so each time, it wasn't for too long. Um, when In 2008, I was there for about three to four weeks. And then in 2014, I was actually um, doing an internship in Cape Town in South Africa as well. So I was in Zimbabwe probably for a total of a month and then in Cape Town for three months. What did you do when you were in Cape Town? Um, I was working at a refugee agency called Aresta, yeah. and um, it's it's really interesting because there's a lot of refugees that um, come from um, northern Africa and go all the way down um, to South Africa, and so um, we're helping a lot of like Somali refugees, refugees from the DRC, mm-hmm. um, get connected to services, and I was doing um, psychotherapy with them because there was a lot of um, difficulties they, they had faced that, that brought them there, a lot of trauma they had experienced, and then also the xenophobia that was going on in South Africa at the time caused additional trauma mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. What was it like going back as an adult? It was interesting. I think, and I think it was interesting because a lot of the things you see as a kid mm-hmm. are very, you know, you, you kind of see them with, with rose tinted glasses. Like it, it seems, everything seems great and seems amazing. And when I went back, I remember some things that I noticed, like the fact that, you know, like the racial disparities I noticed more between the white people who live there and the, the Shona and Ndebele people who live there, and um, and also between the Shona and the Ndebele, and seeing, um, you know, that 
a lot of microaggressions through the way that um, white people talked about the Shona and Nibeli people. And then also um, just rethinking some of the things that happened in, in my life, you know, like the house, the houses we lived in compared to like, you know, the other houses that were there. Like we had a garden and, you know, like a big lawn and, and some friends had pools and, you know, like just thinking about these privileges while being in a um in a country that that needed a lot right and what would have happened if those resources were reallocated you know to everyone and i think the other thing that i noticed was just um something i didn't notice while being there was just the the distrust of saying certain things in public um because of the political situation and i think it was worse when i went back in 2008 but it was also um a problem when I was growing up, my parents would talk about that, like, oh, you know, not to talk bad about the government. Um, and I never even paid attention to that when mm -hmm. I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. So when in the timeline did you start working in mental health? Um, so I started working in mental health in 2011. Um, I went abroad to Honduras for two years. I was working as a volunteer in a microfinance institution in Tegucigalpa. And, um, being there, I recognized there was this group of women who had experienced domestic violence in the community where I lived, and um, they had come together um, and had these sessions from a social worker there that really changed them and transformed their lives. And so even once a social worker left, they stayed together and they formed this community development group. They started um, making um, creating gardens in their community because it was it's a community that um, is a low-income community and so it was like on the side of a mountain um, so there's a lot of trash everywhere and things like that but they were definitely working to clean it up and then they also um, on, on the mountain where it was more open um, they, they created a garden and then they also worked in the clinics there so they were working to help um, the community there and they did it all because they felt empowered by the social worker and so it made me realize that um, social work can really change lives and so i went back and worked at a, um, a rehabilitation center for girls for about two years and then um, started my um, social work degree at loyola and so then i graduated in 2015 and i've been working ever since have you worked across different types of centers for mental health? I know you said you work in kind of a partial hospitalization program mm -hmm. now. What kind of settings have you worked in? Um, so before that, I worked at a center um, for um, immigrant youth uh, for three years um, in Chicago. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. What was that like doing that work here? You did a lot of that work overseas and then doing that here. Yeah, it was interesting. I felt like... It was kind of a good in-between between being abroad and being in Chicago because mm -hmm. I felt um, like I was learning new things about, you know, places in India, places in Bangladesh, places in Central America that I hadn't been before, you know, by, by just talking to this ch these children and asking them questions. I felt like I was also curious and so I was able to, you know, um, help them by showing that curiosity towards them. Right. Um, but... I always felt like I wanted to give more than I was able to and, and going home every day to, you know, a night, a decent apartment with a wife and family, you know, and knowing those kids had to stay at this center, you know, mm -hmm. that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm curious about what populations you work with, where you're at now and 
kind of what kind of presentations of clients you see? Yeah. So um, right now I work with kids who um, are dealing with depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. and kind of um, so at the partial hospitalization level where they they're having difficulty functioning at school or Mm -hmm. getting out of bed and those sorts of things. We also work with kids who are struggling with eating disorders and um, teens who are also um, having difficulty refusing school due to anxiety and different things like that. So they have are having difficulty completing schoolwork. So at the end of the year, like right now, um, we're getting more um, teens who are dealing with that. Yeah. Important work, though. Yeah. It's challenging, but much needed. Yeah. And we get a lot of kids from the, um, the selective enrollment schools. Okay. Which I think is interesting, like seeing how that affects, um, that competition affects kids' Mm. mental health. Yeah, what have you seen with that? I I think we've seen a lot of just, you know, just anxiety perfectionism, you know, crippling Mm. perfectionism. Yeah, that reminds me of working in a college setting. Yeah. I, I worked a lot with that where everyone's, especially with people who are in the more competitive majors and had that kind of strong pressure on them to perform Mm -hmm. very well and a lot of perfectionism which is it's challenging it's hard because yes you want to do well but then sometimes it gets to the degree that it's negatively impacting you right yeah definitely and so yeah it's interesting because I think there are some good things that our schools offer and I think there needs to be an in-between right Mm -hmm. so that kids can feel like it's okay to make a mistake right yeah yeah and failure is part of success right yeah, exactly. Well, we're about at the story part. Yeah, well, let That's us good. know what you have. Excited to hear a story. I have grown up with this understanding of myself that I often think differently from other people, sometimes even the opposite. This has caused me to feel apart, wrong. It took me a while to realize that maybe the reason I felt so opposite is that I've lived in a body for so long that doesn't fit the way I've seen myself. I've been living in a world constantly telling me something different than the way I feel. And that will do something to a person over the years. That'll make them think they're constantly breaking the laws of nature. Maybe some freak who will never learned how to tow the gender line. That was how I felt for most of my life, until I accepted the many invitations given me along the way to change my perspective, which in the end changed me. In June 2017, I was in New York for a conference. While there, I went to the Brooklyn Pride Parade, as float by float passed by with their lesbian bikers and drag queens, all suited up in leather and pink. My attention was brought to a transgender child who looked about eight, born male, presenting as female. They sashayed away in their pink dress, wearing a sequined shawl with the confidence of a model. What got me is they owned it. The certainty of their stride was topped off with the wideness of their smile to create an image that this child was in their element. It made me wonder the type of support they had around them that made them so unafraid, so ready to express themselves. It made me think about myself at that age, so sure I was not made to be female, and expressing it in every way, how I dressed, what I did, who I spent time with, yet lacking the resources to know who I was, transgender. I saw this parade as an out bisexual, as a closeted non-binary. I was challenged by this child to think about who I really wanted to be and what was preventing me from doing that. 
my mother tells me that at the age of three i would pray to god that i could have a penis instead of a vagina i guess that is proof that i was born with an understanding of myself that i was meant to be a different gender than the one assigned me at birth the problem was that the god that was represented in the christian schools i went to didn't seem to look too kindly on the idea of me born a female having a penis that idea of god would be cemented in my mind for the majority of my childhood and the beginning of my adulthood my mom continued to try to put dresses on me for family pictures bribing me with candy to make me do it my smile was fake in those but you could see in other pictures the times when i was my happiest my hair was cut short in a mushroom cut like jonathan taylor thomas i would be wearing a baseball cap backwards a loose turquoise ba boy's tank top with a wave print on the front and long bright colored board shorts in the pictures where i was with my older brother we looked like two boys at disney world two boys at a baseball game two boys riding bikes i wanted to be my brother i was so jealous of him he had exactly what i wanted and he didn't need to do anything to get it i had a younger sister too and we were definitely connected in another way but I never understood playing dress-up or spending hours combing Barbie's hair. My form of dress-up with our female cousins was drag, a nice black men's suit that made me look handsome. When I played Barbies with my sister, my condition was that I would only play if she let me be the Ken doll. She, she didn't want to play Ken, so it always worked out pretty well. One day at school, I was on my way to the bathroom with an, when another kid stopped me. He had spiked blonde hair and long MC hammer pants. He looked like a punk. He came up to me and pointed at the boys' bathroom. You're a boy and you need to go to the boys' bathroom, he told me. Though I appreciated the fact that I passed as a guy at that age, I didn't like being told what bathroom I belonged in or what gender I was. Though I wanted to be male, I felt that I needed to follow the rules of being female. I didn't even know what being transgender was. All I knew was that I was always told by adults to go to the girls' bathroom, so that's what I did. But the boy wouldn't budge. He said he would stay there and watch me as I went into the boys' bathroom. And so I remember walking into the boys' bathroom and feeling sweat form in my armpits. I didn't go to the bathroom in the boys' bathroom and instead listened until I heard footsteps walking away. I knew when I heard the footsteps walking away um, that the boy was walking back to class. I stuck my head to make sure, out to make sure he was gone, and he was. I ran into the girls' bathroom and used the toilet. It made me feel weird, and I didn't know why. I wasn't ready at that point to go into the boys' bathroom, and someone forcing me to do something I didn't feel comfortable with just made it worse. Knowing what I know now about child development, this boy probably just saw some clues that made his brain think that I was a boy and was just following the blueprint for gender that he had been given throughout his eight years of life. He didn't know any better, but it still affected me. Now, I wish someone would tell me to go into the men's bathroom, but no one does that. I now find myself in the same position, looking at the two bathrooms, wondering which one I should go in. There is nobody telling me anymore where I belong, just an old tired rule book in the back of my head that has dictated my actions for a good portion of my life. It keeps me sneaking back into the girls' bathroom, even in the moments when I pass. Throughout my life, that rule book made me feel like every time I did what felt right to me, I was wrong. I felt this as an adolescent who refused to wear makeup. I felt this as a young adult who felt the most confident when dressed in drag. 
I felt this as an out bisexual. I didn't get my own resistance to changing to be trans at first. Many people had come out and transitioned. It worked for them, but they knew what they wanted. I wasn't sure I did. But then the more I thought about it and the way I was when I was a kid, the more I realized that I knew what I wanted. I just didn't feel like I had the courage to take action in that direction. But when I saw that trans child in the pride parade with their hands outstretched, a sequined scarf flowing around their body, I couldn't help but remember myself at their age being told to go in the boys' bathroom. I remembered the shame, the insistence on following the status quo. I wanted that child to finally come out and express myself, just as this one had. I wanted people to know that this was the person they had seen all along, that I had always been uncomfortable in my body, that I had shown it in so many ways, and that if they didn't notice, well, they hadn't been paying attention. It felt like I would simply be naming something that had been a part of me all along, something to celebrate exuberantly, like this child in the pride parade did. I didn't have to hide anymore in any bathroom, cowering, wondering what others would think about me. I could come out and let them think what they wanted. What mattered most was what I thought about myself and how aligned I was to that truth. To solidify my decision to come out, I had a conversation with my sister, who had just been to a teach-in on transgender kids for the preschool she was working for. She told me that the children they were describing with gender dysphoria sounded exactly like me at that age insisting on dressing up like the other gender, asking to have the body parts of the opposite sex, praying to be different than what society claimed them to be. She knew me, she saw it, she named it. She gave me the empathy I had needed for so long, but hadn't let myself take in. She entertained how it must feel to be trapped in a body, growing up in a religion, where gender change wasn't an option. It felt good to be known, to realize that those things I had hidden inside of me were seen, and in being seen, I was accepted. That meant a lot to me. This, coupled with seeing the child in the pride parade, gave me courage to come out to the rest of my family. I started by coming out to those that knew me best, my wife, my parents, my brother. My parents and sister had befriended a trans man over the years and knew all the right questions, what pronouns I want them to use, what name I wanted to be called, when they want to call me this name and when not. It felt like my parents had grown quite a bit since those days my mom bribed me to wear dresses. The religious rule book no longer dominated them as well, which helped it lose some power over me. My parents encouraged me to talk to their friend who had transitioned from female to male. We sat sipping coffee for two hours. I asked him all the questions I had been storing up over the years. Does your personality change when you take tea? What about your sex drive? Does insurance cover top surgery? He sat there and answered honestly. No, your personality doesn't really change. But it is testosterone. I mean, my sex drive did increase. Most insurance has covered top surgery. He made sure I knew that tra transitioning was a way to express your true self rather than a way to solve all your problems. He let me know resources in the community, such as where to go to change my name legally. I left that conversation feeling empowered. I spent some time going over the options and soon came out at work, an experience that was much more positive and natural than I expected. A coworker recommended a trans group for non-binary and female-to-male individuals at their center on Halstead called TMAC. It is a group that meets every other week to discuss and provide information related to being female-to-male and non-binary identified, such as top surgery, parenting while trans, traveling while trans, and taking testosterone. It was there that the questions I had and the ones I didn't even know I had were answered, but more importantly, 
I was surrounded by people with whom I no longer felt opposite and different, who shared the very same thoughts and experiences as me. It made me realize that my experience was much more than okay. It was beautiful, and it was about time that I embrace it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Would you say that you're um, at a point in your life where you're accepting all of your identities, like, wholly? Like, you're not, like, feeling like you shouldn't express yourself as comfortably as you want to? Yeah, I feel like I am. I I feel like, like, in all areas of my life, um, as a writer, social worker, as trans and bisexual, I feel like finally I'm okay. You know, I don't have to fit into somebody's idea of what that means Mm -hmm. you know i'm curious what your experience was like having that conversation with your sister when she kind of labeled some of that for you yeah i mean it felt really nice that she reached out to me and talked Mm -hmm. to me about it and that she actually saw that those things had been happening and Mm -hmm. so it didn't it it felt like i was known Mm -hmm. um and so it it didn't feel like she was prescribing. She was more like asking questions and, and just saying like, Hey, I've seen that, that you've been going through this, mm-hmm. you know, and it's okay to speak out about it. Had you yeah. all talked much about any of those thoughts and experiences you had? Not much. Then? Yeah. A yeah. little bit, but, but not a lot. Yeah. I, I don't really remember that. And even when I came out as bisexual, it was a short conversation. Mm-hmm. And so like over the years we've talked about it more, um, yeah. but yeah, talking about being trans, that was kind of the first time we had a pretty lengthy discussion about it. You also mentioned that your family was like super, I want to, they were supportive, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how did that, was that a surprise to you when that happened? It was actually. I, I think the idea, you know, remembering my mom wanting to put dresses on me, I always feared like them thinking of their child not really being the same gender as they mm. thought their child was and if they would feel like they lost the child. And they said, you know, you're still you and that's what's important. And so it wasn't the gender that was important. So that was really amazing that they were at that point that they could do that. Mm-hmm. With that tied into their own religion and how you grew up, how did that affect, if it did at all, like their own like perception of like Christianity and stuff like that, if you can Yeah, kind of so um, they're in a church that's pretty liberal and mm-hmm. is becoming more liberal. And so they their ideas and i think i actually helped them kind of expand their ideas of um what the bible meant or or more importantly like what loving your neighbor and what loving one another looks like Mm -hmm. and so realizing that you know in order to be for for them even though they're still christian in order to be a christian they need to see people as they really are and accept them as they really are And so um, being able to show love for them meant that they couldn't like prescribe for me who I needed to be. And um, they wanted me to be happy. And so, yeah. Yeah. I think there was a part you also mentioned that you were kind of realizing this identity after you got married. Yeah. So what was that process like for you and your wife? Yeah. So um, I got married in 2016 and... Um, when I got married, I think I had already talked to my, um, my then fiance and then wife about, you know, having different thoughts about my gender and that sort of thing. My, my wife is bisexual as well. And so when I told her, you know, um, I was thinking of transitioning, 
um, she said that she supports me, you know, whoever I am. Um, and that, that wouldn't, she felt like that wouldn't change how she felt about me. So, yeah, I know that, that, that can be a challenge for some people, um, dealing with attraction and that sort of thing. And I feel like as I transition, that might become more of a challenge than right now. But for right now, she said that she's willing to support that. That's great. Yeah. And you mentioned that you have a kid. We no, I don't have a kid. Oh my god! Okay, yeah. I, th- I heard child. I'm like, what? Really? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, we're actually um wanting to have kids though. Oh And no. so yeah, I'm actually waiting to take testosterone until we figure out who's going to carry the baby, nice. and then <laughs> if she carries the baby, then I'll start taking yeah. testosterone. Otherwise, um, I'll wait until I have a baby and then. Can you not take testosterone and have a child? And well, you can, but it. So it's just that certain like. After like six months, it starts affecting it, and oh. so um, it's better to to wait. Yeah. But but you could still like carry a baby while on testosterone, just like to avoid complications. Yeah. You, okay. Makes yeah, because I've heard people have like may had to make decisions of stopping tea right. to go through like getting pregnant and giving birth and all of that, and that mm-hmm. that can be a really big decision. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you're figuring out the logistics ahead of time, right, so exactly. you can make that decision. Yeah. yeah. That's that's great. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm kind of thinking. Of, you said that your work also handled it really well and was really supportive. Yeah, I know. It's it's weird. It's like, oh, everything's great. We're <laughs> yeah. like, you know, not that's it's not the typical experience. Yeah. I feel like most people, um, you know, in some area of their life, there's there's some things that are, they're challenging. And for me, it was mostly, um, the challenge was like my extended family. Okay. Um, and, um, at work, um, it's a trans affirming workplace. And oh, so, um, when people introduce themselves, um, like in groups that we have, mm-hmm. um, for the kids, they, they say my name is, and my pronouns are. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I shared my pronouns with they, them, and I wanted mm-hmm. to be called Ray, you know, they started introducing me as Ray and then um, used the um, pronouns. Yeah. Uh, and kids could be really quick to pick up on right. that stuff, too. Yeah. It's really easier for the kids than the adults, yeah, I feel exactly. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, other coworkers will correct coworkers when they use their wrong pronouns and things like that. That's so great. Nice. So yeah. even they're supporting you, right. like, even if you're not there, which is good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the fact that your story is it tragic even though like <laughs> i'm not shaming anyone whose stories are but it's nice to hear the fact that like you're going through all these things and you're getting support every single step along the way yeah that's true yeah, yeah. it's yeah. really refreshing yeah yeah and, and like the hope is that that starts becoming the norm mm-hmm. right like right would hope for that but we know a lot of people don't have that experience right yeah like hopefully hearing more stories like this people will understand that other people deserve to have that experience right like, right exactly yeah. That's true. and then what it's like for someone to go through not having to handle those obstacles and how much more love and support is around that person and how right. that impacts them as opposed to not not experiencing that right exactly mm-hmm. yeah yeah because then it helps the person instead of feeling like they have to hide or mm-hmm. you know they have to code switch all the time right you know that they're able to just be who they are in the space. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say that in some situations, like I have trouble like correcting people myself mm-hmm. or, um, 
you know, in some, some of my friend groups where people haven't quite caught on or when I do mm-hmm. storytelling and, you know, like trying to figure out what name to use and, you know, mm-hmm. all that can be, yeah. I think my biggest struggle has been the confidence and having confidence in who I want to present myself as. Mm-hmm. Are you still struggling with that? Or is that just like a day-to-day type thing? Like wherever you are, you feel like you should present another way? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I struggle with like, should I, you know, like, like I'm wanting to get a binder. So doing things like that, like mm-hmm. presenting in that way. And then other times I think I, I struggle with just if somebody says something that isn't aligned with how I see myself, I have trouble being like, well, that's not true, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. and then I've always had trouble correcting people. And okay. so I think I just need to be okay with being more assertive, okay. you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked some in your story, too, about having a brother and a sister yeah, and noticing those differences between both of them for you. What was it like kind of being the child that it sounds like you knew that you weren't identifying the way they did necessarily with their gender? Right. What was that experience like? Yeah, I remember um, just always feeling like... And it always being the middle child too, just feeling, you know, kind oh, of on top of it. Yeah. yeah already <laughs> feeling kind of lost and different and just being like, well, you know, my brother seems to know exactly what he likes and what he wants to do. And mm-hmm. my sister is really into, you know, playing dress up and doing the girl thing. And I'm, you know, I want to do exactly what my brother's doing. But then, and then at the same time, like not being totally um, accepted by mm-hmm. you know the guys I was hanging out with like they would they would all want to hang out with my brother because mm-hmm. he was older and then um and then kind of make fun of me because I didn't you know wasn't quite there mm-hmm. so feeling like I never really quite fit in in either space yeah yeah do you think that impacted your relationship with either your sister or brother at all um I think in some ways it did like and I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I feel like my relationship with them has gotten better over the years mm-hmm. um And I've had good conversations with my sister and then recently with my brother. And I feel like like there was some distance. There there was always a lot of distance or, um, you know, I think with my brother, I almost like idled him too much and so didn't really get close to him because Mm -hmm. I put him on a pedestal, you know. And then with my sister, I think sometimes my brother and I would make fun of her to kind of... And, and I did that to, to feel better then, you know. Um, but in other ways, I was more connected to her than my brother, really. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we did a lot of things together, and she was always there for me, and we shared rooms together. So, yeah. yeah. Totally unrelated, but is there, like, a st- strap or string? To oh, no. <laughs> no, I think there was at one point. Okay. So, like, looking at them, it's so it's an awkward placement. Like, it's, <laughs> if you don't understand what I'm talking about, they're wearing a really awesome hoodie, and the, the holes are, like, at the side of their neck. Like, kind of, like, vampire-y. So, I'm, like, wondering how, like, they, like, pull the drawstring <laughs> and, like, tighten it, because it's really funky. <laughs> Yeah. Did you just lose it, or is it just I think like I lost it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they like make their their way out in the wash sometimes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, okay. yeah. 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 I like it though. It's cool. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> like I would only buy it if it comes with the string. I need to know if it comes with yeah. the string. Yeah. 
I just, I don't know. I just, what if you don't want to like talk to anybody? I just want to like. Psh. Yeah, that's true. You <laughs> gotta talk to people. I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, when did you get into storytelling? Um, so I started um, getting into storytelling in I think it was 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, it was when um, it was after the elections and. I wasn't happy with the results of the elections, and um, I wanted to do something about it. So actually, it was more 2017 because that's when I joined an activism group, and um, I befriended some people there, and they started feeling like um, teaching storytelling to people um, whose stories are often not heard um, will help maybe change opinions of those people who have beliefs that, that may be getting in the way of, of those people succeeding, right? So mm-hmm. thinking about um, those who voted for Trump and, and those types of the rhetoric that, that has been going around, that maybe if those people talk to immigrants, if they talk to um, trans people, if they talk to um, more people with varied experiences, maybe they would change their mind. And I know that's like a pipe dream because <laughs> who knows if, if that would happen. But... I wanted to start um, helping people tell their story. So I actually got into storytelling by teaching it. So my friend that I befriended in the activism group, she was um, friends with um, Janice Sobel, who teaches storytelling at Second City. And so um, she taught us at like a low price um, storytelling and like in her apartment. And so we had these sessions every week. And I remember loving those sessions and feeling so connected to everybody who was there with us. And then after that, we started teaching storytelling um, to youth in um, in back of the yards in Pilsen and and in Little Village. And so um, after that, I started um, telling stories, you know, at small events. Um, and I through another project I was doing, I became friends with Nestor Gomez, who tells at the stories at the Moth, and he um, had me tell a story at one of his um, immigration uh, storytelling shows. Um, about my experience working at the the children's shelter uh, for immigrant youth, and so um, after that, I I started realizing how much I loved it, and so I've been telling stories ever since. Very cool. Yeah. On top of that, I kind of want to know more about the book you're writing. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah we you, haven't gotten. There. Yeah, we haven't gotten there yeah. yet. So can yeah. you talk more about that? Yeah, I really wanted to raise awareness about not only um, what's going on in Zimbabwe now, but how that that's been affected by its history. And so um, I kind of was trying to decide how can I tell this story when I'm not Zimbabwean, right? And um, I don't want to assume I know what their experience is, but using, you know, the research that I've done and and, um, the experiences I've had. So I created a story that is through kind of the lens of me using some stories that when I grew up there, some stories of when I went back there, um, but then intersecting this kind of, actually like a storytelling, like a Arabian Nights kind of mm-hmm. um, motif where um, these different stories are being told about um, people in during the Revolutionary War in Zimbabwe, people, um, you know, during um, the massacre that occurred in uh, Zimbabwe in the 80s um, from the... Um, 
President Mugabe that that he directed. Um, and so like telling these stories in these different ways and then also uh, reflecting on the the racial disparities and the idea of like um, somebody you know a white woman trying to to do something to help and the whole white savior thing and and reflecting on that as well and and what can we do about these challenges while still being respectful so that's that's kind of what the book is about so how do you like get these stories have you since you've been going back have you just been like talking to people or I've like been- yeah, talking to people, and then some of them are, like, based on history, and then I create, like, a a story based based on, you know, like, um, things that I was told then. So there, it might be, like, something somebody said. Like, I remember I was actually staying with a Peace Corps volunteer, and, and this was actually in the um, northern part of South Africa, because um, which was right on the border with Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. because I actually um, was not there was like a problem with my passport so I couldn't go back into Zimbabwe right before I left but I remember we were walking through um just like on a path through the savanna and there was um this guy that just popped out from behind a tree and he started tackling like one of the boys that we were walking with mm-hmm. and um and then the boy said oh this boy always jumping out of trees or something like that and uh-huh. so I created a character based on that you know, so so it's things like that where there are these moments where I'm like, oh, that's a cool moment for a book, you know. And so I um, create a character and then and then have like the their personality and then um, other things like a big part of my book is a um, the landmine goes off, mm-hmm. and um, that came from interviewing people when I was in Zimbabwe and them talking about you know there being different landmines buried in different places and how that have impacted people who live there. When do you expect the book to come out? Or when do you think you'll be done with it? Um, so I want to be done with it by the end of the summer. Wow. Um, I'm getting close. But I'm going to have to edit it like crazy. Mm-hmm. My grammar is not perfect. And so I really need to work on that. And I feel like I'm a better rewriter than a writer. And so I'll need to go over it quite a few times and then have other people go over it. And so that process will probably take a year or so. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. It's a process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Do you have a title yeah. for it yet? Yeah, The Land of Ivy Leaf Geraniums. Oh. I like that. It's okay. intriguing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're kind of at that plug moment now, too, so it kind of transitions nicely into... Yeah, shameless plug. So yeah. this is time for you to plug anything and everything that you want to talk about. Promote yourself. Tell us what you do. Tell us what you want everyone to know. All right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm, I do storytelling, different venues. I have um, two shows coming up in the summer. So I have at um, Outspoken and um, at Sidetrack. Yeah, I'm going to be telling a story then. Um, it's in the first Tuesday of June, which will be June the 4th. So I'm going to be telling a story there. And it's at doors open at 6 o'clock and stories start at 7 o'clock. And then um, also on June 20th, a storytelling show called Am I Man Enough? And that's mm-hmm. all about toxic masculinity and challenging it. And so um, I think the stories start at 7 um, at Volumes Book Cafe in um wicker park so i'll be doing that yeah. and then yeah be looking out for a book and review 
the land of ivy leaf geraniums. I'm going to be um, trying to publish that in the next few years. And then also um, actually working with a photographer too. And um, he's a friend of mine in California. Nice. And so um, I wrote a piece about biking through the forest preserve. And it combines with his pictures of um, different um, women that look alike. So Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, a lot to keep a lookout for. That's yeah. great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It was great having you here. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. It was you. great being here. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories. Also check out the creator of our podcast music, B. Studwell. She's an incredible queer artist from D.C., and you can check out her music at bstudwell.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes, don't forget to rate us so others will be able to find our podcast. Talk, Talk to you all, all next week. week. Next time on Beyond Queer Stories. I was drinking white wine in my bed and I was watching Drunk History UK. And just episode by episode, it's all of these stand-up comedians getting drunk and telling English history stories. But there was one comedian in particular who I just found massively intriguing. He had brighter clothes than all of the other stand-ups. He had more jewelry than anybody was wearing. And his... You know, he held his Prosecco in a very specific way. And I loved the way that he would tell his stories and the way that he would move. And I just wanted to watch everything that he was part of. Bye. Bye.